He's risen. He's risen indeed. Okay, we've got to do better than that. This is, this is a church thing, okay? He is risen. He is risen indeed. One more time. He is risen. He is risen indeed. But did he really? I mean, this is an admittedly, that's a bold claim that a man rose from the dead. And if it's true, there's a number of things that fall right into place. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So uh, my name's Robert. I'm the lead pastor here at Ridgetop. We're a baby church. We've just gotten started. We got started in August, and uh, this is our first Easter. So you get to be a part of Ridgetop Church's first Easter, which is pretty special. And we're going to talk about the resurrection, and, and particularly the resurrection account from the gospel writer Matthew. We've been in Matthew uh, several weeks in different places of the book, and so hopefully you're kind of getting a sense of really the entire book as we've been exploring it. Like the gospel writer definitely wants us to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, uh, but not only that, he wants us to understand what that even means and how we come to believe it. And so we're going to look at three different little emphases that we see in this passage that you just heard Christian read. So one is the rock, one is the reveal, and one is the resurrection. I know they all start with R, but it's Easter, and, uh, you know, you got to have some alliteration for Easter. So the rock, let's look at Matthew 27. So go back in those Bibles on your, on your um, chair or in your phone or the Bible you brought. Go back to Matthew 27. And take a look there with me, Matthew 27, 57. It says, when it was evening, there, was, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus, and then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Then Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, and he laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. So Matthew gets really detailed, as do the other gospel writers, about Jesus' burial. And we see this in, again, all the gospels, all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We even see the burial mentioned in the ancient creeds that Jesus died and he was buried. And so the details of his burial seem very important and partly because if there's going to be a resurrection of someone, we need to first confirm that they're dead. It's not a resurrection if they're not first dead. And so Matthew brings a a lot of evidence to support the claim that Jesus is truly dead. One piece of evidence is these Roman soldiers. They're very well acquainted with death. They're well acquainted with Jesus' body as they take it off of the cross. And uh, the gospel writer Mark 15, uh, the gospel writer Mark uh, writes in in chapter 15 uh, this extra little piece of information here. It says, Pilate was surprised to hear that he, Jesus, should have already died. And he summoned the centurion He asked him whether he was already dead, and when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. You can see Mark doing the same thing, like confirming that Jesus is dead, even calling his body a corpse. 
Another piece of evidence that he's dead is this guy, Joseph of Arimathea, which all four gospel writers mention. And it's a big deal to them, obviously, and partly because he was a religious leader. He was part of the group of leaders who actually condemned Jesus to die. And now he's taking Jesus off of the cross, wrapping him in a linen shroud and laying him in a tomb. He's very acquainted with the body of Jesus. And then you have the women. Also, all four gospel writers mention the women who are at the tomb. They see the body laid in the tomb. And so they are a third eyewitness, a group of eyewitnesses to the death of Jesus. Not only this, but there's a lot of details about the tomb itself. And so we see that the tomb is sealed with a large stone, a large rock. Um, This would not have been uncommon. Uh, A a real common practice in the ancient world would have been to put a body in a tomb like this, put a large rock in front of it to protect it, to make sure no one was messing with it and no animals were messing with it. And then they would let it stay in there until it had decomposed and there was nothing left but bones. And then they would put the bones in what's called an ossuary. And these, these bone boxes, they're everywhere in archaeological digs. So this is a really common kind of situation. And so up to this point, it just, it's pretty normal in terms of the, the burial, being placed in a tomb, being uh, closed off with this large rock. But then the next few verses, this is where it gets interesting. Verse 62, the next day, so we're on Saturday now, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how the imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise, and therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. The leaders are worried. Killing Jesus was not enough. They have to make sure he stays dead. And they can't have any nasty rumors about him rising from the dead, especially since Jesus mentioned that this was a possibility that on the third day he would rise. So they asked Pilate to secure the tomb. And Matthew makes this follow-up comment on that section in verse 66. He says, so they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So now not only do we have a stone, we have a stone that's sealed and a guard that's posted at the dead man's tomb. This is all taking place on Saturday. Nothing seems to be happening. Rock stays nice and sealed. Jesus stays nice and dead. Jesus' followers are observing the Sabbath on Saturday. So they don't drop by the tomb. They're resting, they're worshiping, and they're grieving. They're grieving. I don't know if we can even get a sense of the kind of grief that they're experiencing on Saturday. Jesus' followers loved him, but they didn't just love him. They worshiped him. Uh, He could do no wrong. No, I'm serious. He could do no wrong. He had displayed a perfect love to his followers for three 
years. And they had grown to love everything about him. And their relationship with him wasn't just a spiritual relationship. It it certainly was spiritual, but it wasn't just spiritual, right? It was also physical. Uh, They had grown to love his eyes, his voice, his laugh, his teaching, his prayers, his hugs. He even had nicknames for some of them. And so many memories, so many memories of meals shared, of jokes told, and of ministry. When you're in the trenches of ministry, you got a lot of stories. If you're ever hanging around me, you know, almost any topic, I start telling a ministry story because I've been doing this for a long time. And Jesus' followers had seen thousands of people come in contact with Jesus, the, the hurting, the confused, the hard-hearted, the belligerent. So many people, so many ministry stories. And the joy of so many of those people given hope in the midst of their darkness. They'd seen that over and over and over again. And all of that encompassed their experience, their relationship with Jesus. And now he was dead. And it wasn't that he like slipped off in his sleep. This one who they loved, this one who they worshipped, he was betrayed, illegally tried, brutally beaten, tortured, humiliated, slowly put to death in arguably the most horrific fashion ever concocted by human beings. Again, I don't think we can understand the kind of grief that they experience. But we do know grief. We do know grief. If you're a human being, you've lived any amount of time, you know grief. We know grief in varying degrees based on what we've experienced And we know what it's like to lose someone or experience a disappointment that shakes us to the core. On Good Friday night, we sung the old Negro spiritual, Were You There? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they nailed him to the tree? Were you there when they laid him in the tomb? And it is a reflection on the sufferings of Jesus But it's more than that. It's actually also reflecting on the sufferings of the slaves that wrote those words. That as they sang that, they were thinking of Jesus' suffering and how they, in part, were suffering with him, but more importantly, how he was suffering with them. That Christ, this Christ that they loved and they worshipped, somehow... His suffering had meaning, and it gave their suffering meaning as they sang, were you there? And their answer to that was, yeah. (laughs) In a way, yeah, we've been brutally beaten and humiliated and given a tremendous amount of pain. And then Sunday comes. Sunday comes. And again, disciples wake up in the morning. They don't know what's going to happen. 
This is partly, those of you that were part of the Good Friday service, this is partly why we did it the way we did it, is to experience at least to some degree what it was like to be a disciple and to not know how the story continues. And so they're rolling out of bed on Sunday morning, and they don't know. They don't know. Matthew describes it this way in chapter 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week. So this is light of day, right? Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow. The resurrection account, it starts with an angel. Oftentimes when there's a pivotal moment in the story of God among human beings, an angel shows up to give the heavenly stamp of approval to what's happening, but also to interpret it properly because we as humans oftentimes misinterpret what's going on. And so the rock doesn't seem to be a real problem for the angel that had been described in such vivid terms of, you know, rolling in front of the tomb and being sealed and... And the angel's like, eh, earthquake, rock's gone. And he sits on it. <laughs> it's just sort of like, yeah, rock, I got you. Um, and then we see the reveal. And the reveal of Christ and his resurrection is to three different groups of people in Matthew's account. So Matthew 28, 4, the first group is the soldiers. It says, and for fear of him, the guards trembled and they became like dead men. So this is the first group to get the reveal of the resurrection. They're literally paralyzed by fear. This display of heavenly power was so intense that they went into shock. Now, remember these guys back in chapter 27? We read this on Friday. The soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, they put a reed on his right, in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and they took the reed and they struck him on the head and when they mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and they put his own clothes on him and they led him away to be crucified. I wonder if part of their fear is not just the laser light show from the angel, but thinking about what happened in Matthew 27. <laughs> oops. That's a pretty big oops. But this one that they had tortured and mocked and crucified was now resurrected. But paralyzing fear is not the only response that the angel is hoping to get. The second group of people that experience the reveal of the resurrection is the, the women, right? The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. So this is quite a contrast to the experience of the soldiers. They're paralyzed by fear, and the angel literally says to the women, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Right? And so which is it? 
Am I supposed to be paralyzed by fear or am I supposed to not be afraid? Well, it depends. It depends on your, the state of your relationship with Jesus. And the state of the relationship with Jesus for these ladies meant that they had not, nothing to be afraid of. Not one thing. Now, some of you already know this, but this is astonishing that it is women that are the first heavenly sanctioned proclaimers of the resurrection. Women were viewed in the first century by both Romans and Jews to be intellectually incompetent. So much so that they couldn't even give a testimony in a public court of law. And these kinds of cultural realities seem to lend credibility to Matthew's account and the other gospel writers who also mentioned that the women were the first heavenly sanctioned proclaimers of the resurrection of Christ. If they were making this up, why wouldn't they place men at the center of the story? It seems that Matthew is just reporting the facts, and the facts are that the women were the first witnesses of the resurrection of the fact that Jesus had risen. The third group to experience the reveal are the disciples. The women are instructed by the angel, verse 7, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. And there you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. Now notice that the disciples, they don't get an angel as their revealer. They they get the women as their revealer who were given an angelic announcement. And in a minute, we're going to see they're going to get an eyewitness experience of the risen Christ. Jesus is being very intentional about the way that he initially reveals the resurrection to his followers. He seems really, really committed to revealing the facts about the resurrection through verbal witness and scriptural witness. Verbal witness and scriptural witness. What do I mean by that? Notice that even the women are asked to believe based on the angel's verbal witness and the angel's reminder of Jesus telling them that this was going to happen. This is before they actually see a flesh and blood risen Jesus. There's, there's intentionality around that, that they would believe based on verbal testimony. We see a similar pattern in the other gospel accounts. We see this in Luke 23. This is among a couple of disciples who are leaving Jerusalem. They're on a walk to Emmaus, a town called Emmaus, and they're walking and talking about um, the crucifixion. And the resurrected Jesus comes up alongside them and starts chatting with them without revealing who he is. And uh, he gets into this conversation and asks them what's going on. And they're like, were you under a rock? Like, you don't know about this? Like, everyone knows about this. He's like, no, I don't. Tell me more. And so they start telling him the story. In Luke 23, 22, he says, moreover, the, the, the disciples are saying to Jesus, moreover, some women of our company amazed us, and they were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find the body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. 
Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, one side note, you see them kind of questioning the women's testimony. They're like, the women came, they told us this is a lot. I mean, they obviously don't believe it because they would have hung out in Jerusalem. You know, they're like leaving town like, yeah, those crazy women, right? And Jesus' response to them is really interesting. He, he doesn't do like Gandalf the white, you know, oh, he, he just stays on the DL. And he says, you know what? This, all, this was all in the Bible. You guys, you remember the Bible? Yeah. And he starts just working his way through the Old Testament, giving a scriptural witness to the reality of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. You see something similar in the book of John. Uh, when, when in the book of John, Jesus initially does appear in flesh and blood to the disciples, one of them is missing, and it's Thomas. And I don't know what Thomas is doing, if he was late or, you know, what, what, what happened, but he's not there to see the flesh and blood Jesus. And so when he gets there, they're like, you won't believe this. Jesus, he appeared. And he's like, well, this is what he says. Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now, that's interesting, Thomas, because he has verbal witness from the women, and now he has verbal witness from the disciples, and he's like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not believing this based on verbal witness. I need to see the actual flesh and blood Jesus. Now, he gets his shot, and Jesus does appear in front of Thomas, and Thomas doesn't do any finger poking into any wounds. He's flat on his face and saying, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus makes this comment. This is John 20, 29. Jesus said to him, him being Thomas, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So you see the pattern? Resurrected Jesus is revealing himself and he's doing it through verbal testimony and the testimony of Scripture. Now, I don't claim to understand all of this, but one thing I know about God, this this is His way. This is how He reveals Himself, is through His Word. And even as the resurrected Christ is walking around (laughs) in flesh and blood on the planet, He's still staying consistent with that primary way that He reveals Himself through the Scripture He seems consistent with this even, of course, today. One of the things that's happening in the Muslim world right now, a lot of Muslims are having Jesus dreams. And it's it's happening a lot of different places in the Muslim world. But I have not heard of one Jesus dream that where Jesus like explains the gospel to the person in the dream. It's like, hey, I died for your sins. You need to put your faith in me. You'll be forgiven. You'll have a relationship with God if you do that. I've never heard of that. If you, if you find one, please 
uh, send, it, send it my way. But I've never heard that. It's only that Jesus shows up in the dream, and then Jesus puts him in contact with a Christian. And a Christian gives the verbal witness and the scriptural witness to the person. And that's how they hear about the gospel. And that's how they, many of them, not all of them, but many of them end up becoming Christians. So perhaps this is your sticking point, right? That, that, that you need tangible proof in order to believe in Jesus. And I think Jesus' answer to that is the tangible proof is the resurrection. This is what C.S. Lewis calls the grand miracle. And so this is the ultimate attestation of Jesus, who he is and what he's done for us. And this is where we get to the resurrection. Verse 9, behold, Jesus met them and said, so he's meeting the women, greetings. And they came up and they took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. There it is again. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. So just because Jesus' primary way of revealing himself to people is through the word doesn't mean that a historical bodily resurrection doesn't matter. It does. It does. And these disciples and, and the women that were his followers, like, they are eyewitnesses to the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And this cements for us who he is and what he's done. It cements for those women who he is. What, what's their first reaction when they do see him? They worship him. And good Jews, they know you don't worship anybody but God alone. <laughs> and they immediately hit the ground <laughs> and are bowing before him as God, who is also human. He died a bodily death and resurrected in a body and who is also God. And so they clasp his ankles and they feel the flesh of his body and they worship the one true God. It also tells us what he's done for us. They understood that the, the, the reason we have death in the world is because of sin. Paul writes in Romans 6.23, the first part, the wages of sin is death. So the reason we have death is because we first had sin. And so if Jesus has overcome death, that means he's overcome the cause of death, which is sin. His death has paid for sin. And because of that, we can be forgiven, but not only forgiven, we can be given life when we put our trust in him. And so... Um, the call in Matthew's gospel is to believe, to believe what Christ has done, what, he, what he's done on the cross for us. And then as we enter into that relationship through belief, we worship. We worship. Um, Matthew says, he describes another uh, encounter of worship in the, the latter half of uh, Matthew 28, verse 16. It says, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, and some doubted. So 
again, Matthew is, is, is telling us who Jesus is and what the resurrection is saying about the identity of Jesus and what our response should be to, to Jesus, and that is to believe and to worship. Notice some still doubt. That's interesting, isn't it? Some who have been given the tangible evidence, right? Right there in front of them, flesh and blood. It's interesting that Matthew would, would put that in there, but I think partly he's telling us this because he wants us to, to, to know that how you come to believe in Jesus is not just some tangible evidence. It's not less than that, right? It's important that Christ historically rose from the dead, absolutely, but it's more than that. That belief is something actually supernatural, that God animates in us as we're given the truth about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Paul writes this in Romans 10, faith comes by hearing. Wait a minute, I thought faith came by seeing. I could just see it. No, even in Matthew 28 with the flesh and blood Christ in front of them. No, no, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. So I wonder, is the resurrected Christ revealing himself to you this morning? It's partly why he gave us Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so that we could see the resurrected Christ, not just with the eyes on a page, but the eyes of our heart. And to receive that truth by faith. And when we enter into that relationship, we don't have to be paralyzed by fear of the risen Christ. That we can hear those words, do not be afraid. And we can bow and worship him. So if you've not yet done that, I want to encourage you to do that this morning, to move toward God in faith, to receive this good news of Christ's death, his burial, his resurrection for you. It's not just a, an event that happened, it's actually for you, and it's for you to, be, to receive by faith and to enter into this new relationship. If you're not quite there, but you're interested, I would encourage you have a follow-up conversation with someone, a friend that's here or even uh, myself, or you can grab a book on the back there. There's some books about the, the, the Christian faith, and there's some Bibles that don't let this moment get away from you. Move toward God in faith. I'm telling you, He wants to reveal Himself to you, and we see Him doing it here on Easter morning. And for those of us that we do believe, we do believe that Christ died, that Christ was buried on the third day, he rose. Let our response this morning be worship. Worship. To ascribe ultimate worth to Christ as our Lord, as our God. Christ gives us, gives the church a couple of different Sacraments, sometimes they're called ordinances, to make sure that we don't forget the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So one of those is baptism. And when people become Christians, they profess their faith in baptism, and they literally reenact the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus when they go under the water and they come back out. We're going to be doing uh, some baptisms on April 23rd. Okay, so they would come back for that. 
Uh, and if you're interested in participating in that, uh, we're going to be doing a class here on April 15th, tax day. Um, and we would love for you to participate in that if you want to know more about baptism or what it means to join this church or just have questions about the Christian faith. But what we're going to do uh, this morning is the other ordinance, the other sacrament that Christ has given us. And we actually do this uh, every week. And so we are reminded every time we come to this table that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, the night before his death, he took bread, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Part of what's being said there is Jesus saying, I have a human body and that human body died a human death. And that human body was resurrected, never to die again. In the same way, he took the cup, and after he had blessed the cup, he gave it to them saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Again, he's telling this to his disciples the night before his death. He wants to make sure they know this death is not just an example of someone giving themselves for others, but it's actually a, a sacrifice, a substitute for us so that our sins can be forgiven. And if sins can be forgiven, then death is arrested and our life begins. Amen? That's a cause for worship. That's a cause for worship. So let's pray. God, we're so grateful for the resurrection. We're so grateful that we were there when you rose up from the grave. We were there when you rose up from the grave. We were there when you rose up from the grave. And it causes us to tremble, tremble, tremble. Not in fear, but in awe, in worship of the resurrected Christ. So God, would you bless this bread, bless this cup, as we commune with you, the risen Savior, by your Spirit. Thank you for all that it means to us. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.